starting a new series today on the book of Nehemiah, and we're calling this series Rebuilding After 2020. And I suspect after the tumultuous year that we just had and experienced, we could all use a little bit of rebuilding in our lives. And so what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is we're going to take a deep dive into the book of Nehemiah, because even though Nehemiah lived 2,400 years ago, his context is pretty similar to our context today. Uh, the author Ed Stetzer once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And what Stetzer meant by that is that not every moment in history is exactly the same, but it is pretty similar. And Nehemiah's context is pretty similar to our context today. And so the question is, how so? Well, I've used this example before, but have you ever read the Old Testament and thought to yourself, I have no idea what I am reading? Well, if you have, uh, I'm going to do my best to summarize half the Old Testament in three minutes or less with the name of a cafe. Now, that might sound ridiculous to you that I'm going to summarize half the Old Testament with the name of a cafe, but it's so ridiculous that you're now going to remember for the rest of your life because I'm going to sear it into your memory because the cafe that I'm thinking about is Bon Pon. And the acronym ABP, I am not referring to Alban Pond so much as I am referring to A for Assyria, B for Babylon, and P for Persia. So the first powerhouse to conquer the Jews were the Assyrians. And their military strategy was this, uh, we're going to conquer you, but you can stay in Jerusalem. We're just going to rule you from afar. The second powerhouse are the Babylonians. So they conquer the Assyrians and therefore they inherit the captive Jewish community. But their military strategy was very different from the quote unquote peaceful Assyrians. They were a little bit more barbaric. And what they did is they, they, they destroyed the Jewish community in three different ways so that they would never rebel or riot against them. And so the first thing that the Babylonians did was that they destroyed the city walls. Uh, the walls of an ancient city represented protection and security. If the walls came crumbling down, they were vulnerable to attack. And so like in a scene from Lord of the Rings, the Babylonians were like the evil orcs that hammered down the walls of a castle, uh, leaving the, the Jewish community very, very vulnerable. So they broke down the city walls, but they not only broke down the walls, they also destroyed their temple, which effectively destroyed their religion. So now the Jewish community had nowhere to go to church, which kind of sounds familiar. So they destroyed the city walls, they destroyed their temple, but they also destroyed their culture. And the way that they destroyed their culture was by exiling them and deporting them out of Israel to Babylon in order to assimilate them to Babylonian culture, Babylonian language, Babylonian commerce. And so they, they, they exiled the majority of their, their society to Babylon. The only people that were left in Israel were the poor and those that had somehow, you know, Liam Neeson then escaped themselves outside of the, the, the clutches of the Babylonians. Those are the only people that were left there. And so uh, they, they, the Babylonians wanted to, to cripple the Jewish community so that they, they would never rebel. The third powerhouse to enter the scene were the Persians. So the Persians defeat the Babylonians and they too inherit the captive Jews. But the Persians were more like the Assyrians than they were like the Babylonians. For them, 
um, they, they'd rather have happy slaves than captive slaves. And so what the Persians said is, hey, you guys have been in Babylon now for 70 years. That's a long time. So if y'all want to go back to your hometown, you have the green light to do so. And so what ends up happening is a massive exodus from this exile community, uh, about 50,000 who make a pilgrimage back to the city of Jerusalem. Theologians refer to this pilgrimage back to Israel as a second exodus. The first exodus was the, the Jewish community leaving Egypt to go to Israel. The second exodus is the Jewish community leaving Babylon to go back to Israel. And when we see this, uh, uh, the, the wave of the exilic community going back to uh, Jerusalem, what we see is one of the most popular verses in the Bible finally being fulfilled, which we often rip out of context. And that is Jeremiah 29. And this is what the prophet says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place that is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, when Jeremiah is talking about God's plans for us, he wasn't first and foremostly talking about God's plans for us to finally get into grad school or God's plans for us to finally meet the one, which is oftentimes the way that we use it. But what he was first and foremostly talking about was God's plans to bring the exilic community out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's what he was first and foremostly talking about. And we see Jeremiah's prophecy being fulfilled 70 years later in the life of Nehemiah, as wave upon wave of people leave uh, Babylon to take a second exodus back home to Jerusalem. But there was one person that did not uh, initially go with the other pilgrims back home, and that was Nehemiah. And so the question is, why didn't he go back home? Well, if you take a look at verse 11, it says this, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was a Jew who did not grow up in Jerusalem. He had never seen it before. He was born in captivity, in exile, in Babylon as a slave. Um, have you ever seen one of those apocalyptic shows or, or movies where the earth is completely destroyed, but the last remnants of humanity escape, and so they live in outer space in a spaceship, or, or they live on another planet? Nehemiah would have been one of those people that were born on the spaceship or they were born on another planet. They had heard about Earth, but they had never seen Earth or, or lived in Earth. And, and similarly, Nehemiah had heard about Jerusalem, but he had never seen it or he had never lived there. He was born a captive slave in a foreign land in Babylon. But even though he was a foreign slave, somehow he had climbed the ranks up the palace uh, of nobility to become a cupbearer to the king. Now, we don't have cupbearers today, but they had an extremely important job in the ancient world, and that was to sip the wine before the king sipped it. And the reason for that is because poisoning someone's uh, drink was a common way of assassinating people in the ancient world. For example, how did Socrates die? He was forced to drink a poisoned chalice. And so what Nehemiah would do is he would taste the wine in case it was poisoned before the king. And so it was an extremely dangerous job. Uh, because Nehemiah was regularly putting his life on the line for the sake of another. 
but he did it anyway uh, because it was a, a dignified job of protecting the king and he also had the favor of the king and he got to live in a cushy uh, palace as well. And so uh, this is basically where our story begins. So I want you to imagine for a moment we're at a Broadway show uh, and we're watching Nehemiah. The curtains slowly lift up and what we see is a royal palace in the city of Susa, the capital of Persia. And all of a sudden, someone bursts open this, opens the door and it is none other than Nehemiah's brother, Hanani. And Hanani goes running down the hall, searching for Nehemiah in this gigantic palace. And this is what we read in verses one to three. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived in the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, was one of the 50,000 people that made the trip back to Jerusalem. Uh, keep in mind, this is about a 900-mile trip, so the equivalent of going from New York to Chicago. And back then, there were no planes, trains, and automobiles. Everyone had to walk uh, in their Birkenstocks on their feet. And so this is a minimum four-month walk. But what's crazy about Hanani is that he not only makes that four-month walk, but he makes a four-month walk back to Persia. And the question is, why does Hanani take this uh, crazy long trip? He must have had something really, really important to share with Nehemiah. And we find out that he does. And Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, shares some tragic news. That the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins and the people lie in ruins as well. And this leads me all the way back to my original point. Why are we doing a series on Nehemiah? Well, much like Nehemiah's context, our city, our country, our lives, our world, it lies in ruins. Uh, because of COVID-19, racial injustice, political turmoil, um, everything is broken down from our health to our economy to uh, emotional mental stability. Uh, everything about our, our society is kind of lying in ruins, even our church. And so the question is, how do we rebuild our lives, uh, our church, our city, our world? How do we rebuild our, our lives back together again? Well, when we take a look at the life of Nehemiah, notice what he does when he realizes that everything is broken down and falling apart. In verse 4, he says this, when I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So when Nehemiah is broken down, he looks up to God. And similarly, I would say that we've been broken down. And if we're going to rebuild our lives, we have to look back up to God in prayer. And one of the things that I really admire about the life of Nehemiah in particular is that if you read, you know, the entire book, which is not that long, one of the things that he's constantly doing throughout the book is that he's praying. And it's not even in terms of like the length of his prayer so much as how often he does pray. I mean, it's like sometimes it's just one sentence, but he's constantly living his life 24-7, Koram 
deo. And in Latin, the phrase coron deo simply means before the face of God. Nehemiah has this keen awareness that he is constantly living his life under the presence of God. You know, right now, I am keenly aware that I am under the presence of God. Why? Camera's on, the lights are on, the mic is on. So I'm aware that, you know, I am under the eyes of God. I'm aware that I'm under your eyes as well. But you know what? When the camera turns off, the lights turn off, the mic turns off, my awareness of God, it quickly, quickly dissipates. And so this is one of the reasons why I love things like noon prayer, because by noon already, my focus is off of God and it's already on my distractions all around me. But prayer is an opportunity for us to recalibrate our spiritual compass so that it's back on our true north instead of all the difficulties, distractions, and circumstances that lie um, that, that that are in our lives. Um, I like what the North African theologian Augustine once said when he said that prayer is not an invitation to enter into God's presence. No, prayer is a realization that you already are in the presence of God. And I do wonder how radically our lives would be different if we just realized that we are before the face of God every moment of the day. When we are broken down, prayer helps us to look back up to God. And when we take a look at Nehemiah's prayer, there are three things that we see. So the first is in verse five. Nehemiah says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So the first thing that Nehemiah does in his prayer is that he praises God simply for being who he is. And my question to you is, when you take a look at your prayer life, how much of your prayer life consists of just simply praising God for who he is? I suspect that most of our prayer lives consist of just asking stuff from God. But how much of it consists of praise? Imagine for a moment that you received a love letter from someone. But in the letter, the only thing that the person talked about was, hey, could you do me a favor? Or would you mind taking care of this? Or could you help me out with that? And that's all the love letter consisted of. How would you feel? What would you think? You probably think, does this person actually want to be in a relationship for me or because they want me to just do stuff for them? And similarly, when we pray, how do you think God feels when the only times we ever come up to him is, hey God, could you do me a favor? Could you help me out with this? Could you help me out with that? And, and, and God is more than pleased to help us. But at the same time, he's not Santa Claus. He's not a genie in the bottle. He is our great God. And so one of my challenges, friendly challenges to you, is to praise God more in your prayers. And I promise you, that will turn your small view of God into a bigger view of God. It will will expand our stifled and stymied imaginations of who God is and expand it to to be bigger and bigger. I cannot tell you how helpful this has been for my own prayer life. So Nehemiah begins by simply just praising God for who he is. But the next thing that he does is that he confesses his sins. And this is what he says in 6b and 7. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. 
we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You know, oftentimes when we're experiencing broken brokenness in our lives, it's, it's not just because of outside forces like COVID-19. Um, more often than not, when we do experience brokenness in our lives, it's really not because of external forces so much as internal sinful forces that are wreaking havoc in our lives. And you know, confessing our sins is one of the best ways of rebuilding the brokenness in our lives. It's one of the best ways of bringing healing uh, into our lives as well, which is why the theologian John Owen once said, always be killing sin before sin kills you. And confessing our sins is also one way of killing our sins, lest it kill us first. And so one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is this, the more you become like Jesus, the less you will feel like Jesus. Now you might be thinking, wait, what? Isn't it, shouldn't it be the more you become like Jesus, the more you will feel like Jesus? And, and that's the paradox of Christianity. The more you become like him, the less you actually feel like him. So here's, here's an example. Imagine you're in a very, very dark, dark room that has no light at all. When you're in a dark room, you can't really see how messy it is. But now imagine the lights go off. Now, all of a sudden, you can see how filthy and messy and dirty the room might be. And, and similarly, it is with our relationship with God. The closer we draw to this light that is God and the, the holier we become, that, that light, that holiness exposes the messiness and the brokenness and, and the dirt in our lives. And so here's, here's some good news. If you are struggling and wrestling with sin, I want you to be encouraged because that's actually a sign of your holiness. But if you're not struggling with sin whatsoever, be concerned because that means that you are not growing in your relationship with him at all. The more you become like him, the less you will actually feel like him. And so Nehemiah confesses his sins and he confesses the sins of his people and he intercedes on their behalf. And the reason why he intercedes on their behalf is because of a third reason. And I'm going to read some of these, blitz through some of these verses for you. Um, um, and I, what, what I want you to see is how many times uh, Nehemiah uses the word servant in his prayer. And in verse 6 and following, he says, Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. We have not obeyed the commands you gave your servant, Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant, Moses. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed. Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. So clearly, Nehemiah views himself as a servant. And the truth of the matter is we, we all serve something. Uh, in the first line of Aristotle's ethics, he says that all men seek happiness. And the primary way that we seek happiness is by working for something or serving something to garner that happiness. So we, we all serve something. And if you want to figure out what you particularly serve to, to seek happiness, here's some diagnostic questions. Uh, what drives you in life? What goals must you obtain? What consumes your thoughts and imagination? What do you require for life to be meaningful? You follow that path to these answers, 
and you will find what you serve to find your happiness in life. The question is, is what you're working for going to really give you the happiness, the meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction that you really, really need, or is it not? Howard Stern was following a, a path that led to nowhere. And in an interview with NPR, this is what he says. There was a point in my career where one out of every four cars in the largest market in the US, New York, were listening and tuning in to me. When I heard that, I was massively depressed that three out of those four cars were not listening to me. When you want everything and nothing satisfies you, and you only want to be in a narcissistic kind of way, the center of the universe, it shows that I was clearly a starved person who believed that the focus needed to be on me. So we're all serving something, whether it's people's approval or our parents' approval, we're serving our careers, fortune, fame, we're all sacrificing something to, to acquire the happiness that we need. The question is, is what we're serving and working so hard for is on the other side a pot of gold, or is there nothing but fish bones on the ground? For Nehemiah, the way that what he served was God and his people. And what's so cool about uh, the, the story of Nehemiah is that, I mean, he, he doesn't have the, the privilege of looking into the future like we do. But what we see is that his acts of service actually paved the way for Jesus to come. When you take a look at your Bibles, Nehemiah is somewhere smack in the middle of the Old Testament. But chronologically speaking, Nehemiah is the last story in the Old Testament. So if we're still at our Broadway show, the curtains are now coming down after the story of Nehemiah, and there isn't a 20-minute intermission. There's a 400-year intermission of silence. But after those 400 years are over, the curtains now slowly come back up to a chorus of hallelujahs that angels are uh, singing because a baby has been born in Bethlehem named Jesus. And so what we see is the baton being passed off from Nehemiah to the greater Nehemiah, Jesus. Like Nehemiah, Jesus was the ultimate servant of God and his people. Like Nehemiah, who wept on behalf of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus wept for the city of Jerusalem and for his people. Like Nehemiah, Jesus left the royal palace, not in Persia, but the royal palace in heaven to eventually go to Jerusalem. What's so interesting is that at the end of Jesus's life, he was killed outside the walls of Jerusalem, the very walls that Nehemiah had built. And the reason why he was killed outside the walls of Jerusalem is because Jesus confessed the sins of his people. But unlike Nehemiah, he himself was sinless. But he took on the sins of his people because Jesus was the ultimate cupbearer. Jesus drank the cup of poison of God's wrath that we deserved in our place. And whereas Nehemiah just drank that wine at the risk of his life, Jesus drank the full wrath of God in our place with the cost of his life so that we would never have to taste a single drop of it because of our sins. He paid the price of his life to save us. And when you see how Jesus saves us and serves us, it really should boomerang us to serve God and serve his people in many ways, just like Nehemiah did. Um, and I'll close with this. Many of you have been to uh, Notre Dame in Paris before. 
there's a, a pretty equally impressive cathedral about 50 miles south of Paris called the Chart. And much like the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, it was, it was burnt down in flames. What's really interesting about the Chart, though, is that, and I could be wrong, but I think it was rebuilt in a span of 26 days. And the reason for that is because there were thousands of people from the north, the south, the east, and the west that were marching like a procession of ants to the rubble of the Chart in order to resurrect and rebuild the Chart again. And, and it, it wasn't just stonecutters and masons and artisans, but it was nobility to even circus clowns that were helping to reconstruct and rebuild the, the Chart Cathedral. What's equally fascinating about this story is that no one knows who these builders were. They, they, they are nameless, faceless people that worked together for something greater than themselves, for the glory of something that is greater than themselves. And I love that imagery because that is what we are called to do. That is what the church is, what we're called to be. We are called to be nameless, faceless servants who are working together for the glory of something far, far bigger than ourselves. You know, this might sound paradoxical and ironic, but if you are broken down, one of the best ways of rising up is not by glazing at your problems, but, but by looking up at God. We rise up by lifting God up. We rise up by lifting other people up. And when you are not consumed with just yourself and what's going on in your life, but you are consumed with serving others, Ironically, you will find that your life is rising from the ash heap uh, as well. Well, that's it for Nehemiah chapter one. Uh, there are six more weeks of this to go. Uh, I hope that it's been helpful. Uh, and so I am gonna close this in prayer.